Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, against the backdrop of the pandemic's fourth wave, Ontario is preparing to mandate vaccines for hospitals, long-term care workers, and begin targeting COVID-19 booster shots. Dr. Brian Litchie with the McMaster Immunology Research Center joins us to talk about that. Well, the 2021 federal election is officially on. How's this going to work during the pandemic? It's a good question. We'll address it. And Canada has closed its embassy in Afghanistan, but Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says efforts of Canadians who fought in that country will not be in vain. We'll talk about that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario now is preparing to mandate vaccines for hospitals, long-term care workers, as they begin to target COVID-19 booster shots with the, the people that they think may be the most vulnerable. Global's Darren Boland has the details. Using his authority as Ontario's chief medical officer, Dr. Kieran Moore will issue the vaccine mandate after watching recent daily case counts and hospitalization numbers spike in the province. Those who refuse their shots will be subject to an education session on the merits of vaccines, with further refusal being met with twice-weekly COVID-19 testing. The province will also utilize its supply of vaccines to begin dispensing COVID-19 booster shots with the elderly and the immunocompromised first on the list. Also next week, Ontario's colleges and universities will receive a letter from the doctor supporting their efforts to make vaccines mandatory on campus. But here's the news people won't like. With a fourth wave of COVID-19 creeping its way into the province, Dr. Moore will also halt any further reopening of the economy in an effort to avoid another lockdown. Darren Boland, Global News. So what are the implications of that? Uh, Pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Brian D. Lecce, who is the Associate Professor in Pathology and Molecular Medicine at McMaster University's Immunology Research Center. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time this morning. Hi, how's it going? It, well, so far, so good. Uh, we've I've crossed the Rubicon, I guess, and we're going into the idea of uh, mandatory vaccinations for some people anyway. Uh, is this a good move? Well, unfortunately, it looks like it's it's necessary. Um, the Delta variant is, is here, um, and it's putting unvaccinated people in the hospital. And um, the other worrisome aspect of it is that, uh, you know, seniors, uh, people with weakened immune systems, and even randomly rare people who have been fully vaccinated can become infected from those people who uh, have chosen not to be vaccinated. And so, you know, unvaccinated people put uh, a strain on the healthcare system and uh, put some people around them at risk. And I know I got some reaction, I'm sure others did, uh, over the last couple of weeks to say, well, what's the big deal? We seem to have this under control. We don't. As you just mentioned, uh, we're into the fourth wave now. And Dr. Moore, in his, uh, uh, his comments the other day, uh, said that people who are unvaccinated are eight times more likely to get infected with COVID-19 compared to full vaccinated. Unvaccinated adults over 60 are 15 times more likely to be hospitalized due to COVID compared to 19. Those are pretty dire numbers that we need to look at, but those are that's the truth, and sometimes the truth is necessary. Yeah, and actually, if you look at the, um, and you can go across the country, province by province, if you look at the the um, the public health numbers for who's in ICU and who's dying, it is almost entirely unvaccinated people, which makes it kind of black and white. Uh, you know, to put it bluntly, if you want to die from COVID, just don't get vaccinated, and it might happen. 
Well, and, and again, I know you can get bogged down in statistics, but uh, I think you and I talked in one of our previous conversations about 90% of the COVID cases uh, since January when the vaccines were introduced, 90% of the people that have been tested positive were unvaccinated and continue to be unvaccinated. So there's 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 no black and white here or no gray area here. I mean, you you either buy into this or you don't. Uh, but, Doctor, I'm surprised by the number of people that are yet to be vaccinated. And I guess we need to be clear, not all of them are anti-vaxxers necessarily, you know, that are protesting up and down the streets or at City Hall. Some of them just haven't bothered to do it or seem to have apprehensions. Does that surprise you? Yeah, I think that's why the term vaccine hesitancy is what is most often, you know, thrown around. Um, because you're right. Um, I know that not everyone who's um, failed to become vaccinated to date is, you know, stridently opposed. There's always going to be that um, subset. But there are a lot of people who still um, either haven't felt it necessary or still have questions. And that's why we still have to continue to educate. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the more obvious it becomes that vaccination, you know, keeps you out of the ICU um, and keeps you alive, the, and the more the Delta variant spreads around and, and, and puts unvaccinated people in the ICU, I think hopefully the last uh, holdouts will, will finally realize that it's time to go ahead and, and get the shot. There's a lot of misinformation out there, which I'm sure is clouding the, uh, the issue for many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot, unfortunately. Um, and it's hard to deal with that. Uh, one of the things that uh, my colleagues at McMaster have been noting in their, uh, you know, talking to people who are vaccine hesitant is that one of the things that will sometimes convince them is that if someone they know um, admits that they've been vaccinated and lets them know that it's it's you know was all fine uh that sometimes tips people over so so if you've been vaccinated and you know people who are still on the fence or you know in your family or your circle of friends you know let them know that it was fine and you know you can go on with your life and uh it'll be a lot easier for them to go on with their life as as mandates come along and as passports come along and uh it 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 just is going to get more and more difficult to be amongst the unvaccinated and, and to be able to enjoy, you know, the, all the best parts of our society. It's a little bit also needing to contribute to society to be able to benefit from society. You know, if, the funny thing about that, though, is this: for the unvaccinated, you're absolutely right. You know, to give them the opportunity to benefit from everything that we have to offer in society, but to give everybody else a chance too. I mean, I, I'm I'm double vaccinated. I'm I'm sure you are too, doctor. Uh, but there are certain things we aren't allowed to do now because the numbers are still too high. Uh, I, I, you know, that's that's the fault of the unvaccinated. That's that's right on them to say, look, at you guys are you you're part of the problem here. And and you know, there has to you're right. It has to be an education program here uh, to let people know about that. And to be able to counter some of the misinformation that's out there, but well, you can go on the internet and find any source there that'll substantiate any of the concerns you have right now. Doesn't mean it's true, but it's on the internet, and a lot of people figure if it's there, it must be true. Yep, um, it, it's hard for um, you know a lot of people to tell what they can trust and what they can't trust out there, um, and it's 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 tough to deal with that, but. Uh, you know, I think the mandates, because of all of this, 
have become necessary, partly because I, I you know, I'm, a, I'm an, all about analogies. When I, when I teach as a professor, I use analogies. We're all used to the, the need for, say, a driver's license to be able to have the right to drive, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a big part of that, if you think about it, and I don't know how often people do, and there's probably some of your listeners right now are driving, but part of it is you have to be able to trust the other person, the other drivers, to have a license and to have been you know, properly trained to drive. Um, you wouldn't go 120 kilometers an hour down a road and, and have somebody else come the, same, the opposite direction right past you if you didn't have faith that they're not going to cross that line and hit you. And so there's lots of examples in our day-to-day life where it's important that we trust those around us to uh, be doing what they should do to keep themselves and us safe, right? Absolutely. And this, is, this falls into that category, I think. Um, we need to keep each other safe, not just ourselves. The the one element that I, I'm really surprised about too are the healthcare workers who have yet to be vaccinated and uh, some hesitancy. I mean, there's one story going around that that uh, women who are considering pregnancy may shouldn't get vaccinated because it could have a, a negative impact. And, and there's no medical evidence, from what I've been told anyway, uh, that that exists. But it's something that's out there, so that causes that sorts of hesitancy that's going on now. Uh, but you know, a year ago we were all saying, "Oh my God, look at the, the people that are getting infected. Look at the people that are dying." If we only had a vaccine, and and it came along so well, uh, I did want you to comment about one other element that because I hear this one a lot, Doctor, is well, you know, what it takes three to four years for a vaccine in minimum to be developed because of all the work that has to be done. They did this in one less than a year. That means they must have skipped some steps and they they must have taken some shortcuts. So we're not sure it's actually going to be accurate. Uh, no, how do you, how would you respond to that? Um, I would say they didn't skip steps; they accelerated steps, right? So you can, um, you know, take your whole weekend to to do a task, but many of those tasks, especially with you know a bunch of help from your friends and neighbors, you could do more quickly. And you're not skipping steps, you're just doing things more quickly. And the truth is, most is, you know, it's been a while, a long time, since there's been a huge need to rush um, to get people vaccinated. You know, some people may remember, you know, when polio was a, was a big scare and a huge problem, and, you know, they hurried up and got a polio vaccine going. But it's been a while since we've needed to do that. And so, um, you know, for a while now, vaccine development has moved at a certain pace that was appropriate to the situation. But this time we had to accelerate it. And so the same steps were done much more quickly. And the truth is hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated now. Actually, over a billion people have been vaccinated now. Um, That is way more data than all of those other vaccines that took three or four years because there was no huge rush to vaccinate a billion people with those other vaccines. We know way more about these vaccines than those ones that took three or four years. We just did it quicker. One of your colleagues mentioned a very similar thing, and I I said, you know, how would you 
ex- explain this. And he says, money. <laughs> he says, he says, there's money for research and, and development of vaccines, but never before in history has yeah. there been money thrown at a, at a concern like this with COVID. Uh, you know, you'd go into where there was a lab with 10 people working on a vaccine. Now there's a, a thousand working on it. I mean, he says that's, that's kind of the analogy to use. Uh, they were able to do that simply because they got the money to do what they had to do when they had to do it. And, and, and that's, that's unusual. That hasn't happened before, but, uh, yeah, I think it explains a lot of what's going on. Uh, so, you know, to, to suggest that you know steps are being skipped, and but, and, and that's why you know some of the people are having some side effects. But as I think you mentioned to us before, there's nothing is perfect. Uh, there's always going to be the risk of, of anything in a medical procedure, anything you inject mm-hmm. or any kind of surgery you have. There's always going to be a risk. But you, you know, our job as a society is to minimize that, I guess. Well, so we've, like I said, we've learned more about this vaccine because of the large number of people who have been given it in a short period of time. And so um, our understanding of those rare side effects is much greater for this vaccine than for many medications that people, you know, listening right now take all the time because they weren't so closely um, um monitored as they were being developed and there's lots of medications that are used daily which have not been given to a billion people (laughs) to find rare side effects so we know more about this vaccine and than many not just other vaccines but many medications that people take day to day I want to get your thoughts. Got a couple of minutes left here, but uh, one of the other announcements that uh, was made by Dr. Moore over the weekend about uh, a third dose uh, for people that are highly vulnerable. Uh, you mentioned cancer patients, uh, maybe the frail and elderly, and things of this nature. Uh, th- that's surprising to some people, but I think as, as one doctor said, well, the fact that you're double vaccinated is great, uh, but he says it's like wearing a, a rain jacket. It's not a Kevlar vest. It doesn't make you impregnable, and if you're a high risk with this Delta variant that's going around. Do you think a third dose would make a lot of sense as a booster? Yeah, I mean, there's good reason to think. Um, and actually, if you think about other vaccines, there are certain vaccines that we get boosted, you know, at a certain frequency through most of our lives. The tetanus one comes to mind. They say every mm-hmm. 10 years you should get a booster, right? So um, it's not unusual to need additional boosts to maintain a level of protective immunity and not everyone's the same and you know it doesn't you not be a genius to look around and realize that not everyone uh is identical and so there are people who will benefit from that third dose and and so and it's taken time um because they've been monitoring the immune responses of people who've been vaccinated and what we've seen is that there are certain seniors and uh, immunocompromised individuals who don't respond as well to the second booster as we think they need to be. So they're not at a level of protection that, you know, will keep them safe. And so a third boost should bring them up to that level. Um, There are also other, you know, vaccines being developed in the pipeline that are kind of designed to super boost, you know, the existing immunity and maybe provide even better protection against the variants, but they're not here yet. Well, uh, hopefully the message is going to get out there, and, and hopefully people are going to understand the importance of, of getting that vaccine. Uh, we're not going to get anywhere near herd immunity. We use that term a lot until we, we get a lot more people vaccinated. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. 
Not a problem. Happy to do it. Thanks. You too. Take care. Dr. Brian Lichty, of course, Associate Professor in Pathology and Molecular Medicine at McMaster University. Uh, interesting sidebar story to this, too. Uh, you know, as, as uh, we got the announcement from Dr. Moore, uh, the Chief Medical Officer here in Ontario, about uh, the mandatory vaccinations for people in long-term care facilities. Apparently, uh, we're told that uh, this was as a result of, a, of an action by uh, the, the Minister of Long-Term Care, uh, Rod Phillips, uh, who apparently undertook on his own initiative some surprise inspections of some nursing homes and uh, found that there were a lot of people that were yet to be vaccinated. And he took that message back, I guess, to the cabinet table and uh, said, we got to do something about this. Uh, and I mean, overall, it's great uh, that, that I think it's about 90%, especially for people in long-term care facilities, personal care workers and the like, that have already been vaccinated. But in some facilities, that, that number is as low as 60%, and we have to do better than that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are now in election mode in this country. September 20th is the date for the federal election. The campaigning, well, the campaigning started long before uh, the prime minister visited the governor general. But now you can already start to see some lawn signs up in some of the neighborhoods. Uh, people are getting a little active about this, and some people are getting kind of ticked off about this. I, I know they always say every time there's an election, this is this is a, an election that's different from all others. Well, this one is because it's Canada's first election during a pandemic. Global's Mercedes Steve. Stevenson says millions of mail-in votes are expected this time. Elections Canada is anticipating an unprecedented surge in those mail-in ballots. In the last federal election, out of 18.3 million ballots cast, just over 50,000 were sent in by mail. This time around, some experts estimate that number will be closer to 5 million, none of which can be opened until polls close. Global News got access to the inside of Elections Canada's headquarters where they've been getting ready. That includes prepping ballots and buying materials, including a staggering 16 million pencils. So it's uh, it's going to be a different situation because of uh, of the mail-in ballots. Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, we've just heard from Mercedes talking about the number of mail-in ballots that are going to be available right now. Are we opening ourselves up to the debate we just saw in the U.S. last November about about fraud and all this sort of thing? I mean, are you comfortable with mail-in ballots? Yeah, I mean, I think the evidence would would support that we don't have anything to worry about, really, with respect to, to mail-in ballots. They are, they are a completely valid way to vote, and they are a safe way to vote. And I think in an election like this, when we have to be mindful that, yeah, you know, we're still in a pandemic, and people, you know, may not feel safe. We don't want anyone to feel that they can't vote because they don't want to show up at the poll. So a mail-in ballot is a totally valid way to do it. And we saw that in the U.S. election. I know that some people have expressed some concern uh, that, you know, this is going to keep people away from voting. I, I suppose some might do that. I, that's always going to be a concern. But the U.S. election is probably a classic example of that. Uh, they had the highest voter turnout they've ever had in a U.S. election. That was right in the middle of a pandemic. So if people are motivated, they're going to go out and vote, I would think, because there are options for them. Oh, for sure. We're having an election here in Nova Scotia right now. Uh, uh-huh. The voting day is tomorrow. And... I don't think, to be honest, that the turnout is going to be huge, but not because of the pandemic necessarily. I don't, I don't get any palpable sense that people feel like it's not safe to vote. It's just more that people want to be in summer mode and people are, or people are working and thinking about back to school and things like that. So, yeah, I, we'll see what tomorrow brings for us and then whether that gives us any impression of how it will go at the federal level. 
Uh, yeah, that, a lot, all eyes are on Nova Scotia right now to see just what's going to happen with Premier Rankin and, and his government. Yeah. Uh, we've had a few pandemic elections, and, and you're right, voter turnout has, has not been as high as people had wanted it to be. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they did carry the election. I guess we, we shouldn't really make too many uh, comparisons between the U.S. election and, and what's going to be happening here, Doctor, uh, because there is one very stark difference here. Uh, in the U.S. elections, each state runs their own election. I mean, you're voting for a federal government, a federal, you know, a prime a president, etc. But New York has different rules than Utah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In this country, Elections Canada is is the overarching body for the whole country. That's exactly it, and that's a really good point. Like, absolutely, and we're seeing some of the effects of that decentralized election administration, and in a really, in a really bad way, in cases where people are being pushed to overturn a result, or to ignore results, or to ignore certain ballots, and this, it's frightening to think about. And when I read those stories coming out of the U.S., I'm like, thank goodness we have one, you know, solid election administration body across the country who, you know, don't report to a political boss and who, you know, who have that, the integrity of elections here is protected. And so it's it's a big comfort. But at the same time, you know, like you you read those stories and you get scared thinking like, oh, my goodness, like when not so much. I, I don't have worries about election administration in Canada but the fact that politicians in the U.S. feel inclined to deny valid election results and to, you know, question outwardly whether the, the, the election was fair, whether the election was rigged, and they don't accept the result, and I'm, of course, talking about one person in particular, it's just frightening to look at because that's the integrity of democracy being chipped away. Well, and that's still happening, and and we've seen. Uh, I guess the the fallout from that is, are what some state legislatures are doing now, is is basically crafting different rules now for the next federal election that are going to prohibit or make it much more difficult for a number of people to vote. And uh, unfortunately, it seems to be targeted at minorities who they feel were the ones who probably shouldn't have had their votes counted last time. It's a, it's a sad situation. Uh, not to suggest that ours is perfect, but it's different. And, and I, as you, feel much more comfortable with this system. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we always have to be careful what's going on culturally, what's going on socially, what is happening with the decline of civility where somebody who runs in an election doesn't accept the result. This is the only time that a president hasn't conceded when he lost. Like it's, that is, you know, when people start questioning the rules and they won't accept the outcome because they, it wasn't in their favor, you know, that's that, that civility we need for democracy starts to crumble away. And then, you know, I, I just don't want to be there. I don't want that to ever happen here. Uh, let's talk about civility. Glad you brought it up. <laughs> uh, and this this goes uh, to how the elections are actually going to be run, and I mean by the participants, the political parties. Uh, yeah. So far, as before yesterday, of course, when the official work was dropped, uh, you could still advertise, but usually third-party advertising. We've already seen an inkling of some of the uh, personal attack ads that are going to be going out there, and, and they all do it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, does it turn voters off, or does it inform voters? Well... Like, I think for the most part, if you're a committed voter, right, like if you like Justin Trudeau or you don't, if you see an attack ad, it's not going to change your opinion. You know, if, you, if you're for him, you're, it's just going to bounce right off you. It won't matter. And if you're against him, you were against him already. If anyone is going to be moved by an attack ad, it's going to be an undecided voter. And I think in that case, the key with an attack ad is to be able to pluck the thread of something that resonates, right? It has to be realistic. It has to be... Like when you think about some of the attack ads that have been successful, a lot of them were were um, operationalized by the Harper government. 
they were able to define Michael Ignatius. They were able to define Stefan Dion before those men could define themselves. And their attack ads really worked. But something like, just to go bounce back to the U.S. for a second, like some of the the polling, I guess, the kind of not really but exit polling and some some of the, the attempts to figure out whether the Lincoln Project was successful, you know, a lot of people say that thing didn't move, move a single vote. And look how much money was behind that. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to think about. I mean, ridiculous attack ads like the one we saw come out last Friday do not work. Well, as a matter of fact, we saw in, in recent history anywhere where they, almost the inverse is true. They actually have a negative impact on the party that's putting those out there. And the, the one that comes to mind, I guess, was, and this is going back a few elections now, uh, where it was a, a, an ad put on by the Conservatives, uh, and painting Jean Chrétien in a rather unflattering unfl- position and, yeah. and basically kind of making fun of his speech pattern, uh, which, by the way, is, as we now know, and probably a lot of us knew then anyway, was because of a medical condition he had as a child. Uh, but, but that went on there. And I guess the, the, the Conservatives actually pulled it, I think, after a couple of weeks because of the, yeah. the pushback they were getting. Oh, exactly. Like, I mean, you've, we, we expect politicians to be held to account for the decisions they make. And that was something that, I mean, that ad in particular that you were referring to, that was, that was awful and an absolute embarrassment. And I know a lot of pr- people who identify as progressive conservative who were still, embar- you know, still embarrassed by that. It, this is have to, something that you, I think politicians have to be really careful with. If they go the negative route, um, you know, make sure that it's not going to blow back up in your face. It's a risk. And, you know, I think, like we saw, the Harper government tried to do it with Trudeau in 2015, and it didn't work at all. But he's, he's a tough one to, you know, he has such a brand of his own that it's hard for another party, even, you know, no, no matter how strong they are, to try to tell us who Trudeau is, right? Like, it just doesn't really work with him. Uh, yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, with Ignatieff and Stefan Dion, uh, their their failure to identify with voters was was easy uh, prey, I guess, for the for the conservatives yeah. at that time to say, okay, we will we'll define you, we'll tell you what this guy's all about, and it worked in their particular situation. Uh, you, you know, Trudeau has a brand. You're absolutely right. Whether you like it or not, he has a brand. He is what he is, yeah. and and you can't try to you know, change that color. That's just the way things are going to be with him. Uh, the other element to this too is is what happens at the riding associations, and and maybe you can give us some insight into this, Doctor, since uh, Nova Scotia votes tomorrow and you've had a, a campaign uh, that's been going on for the last couple of weeks. Uh, there, are, there are two different battles being fought. There's the, the, the chance to win a, a, a government and you know somebody in your party become the Prime Minister, but the, the other battle is at the local, at the riding level, and it's a much different battle because it's, uh, it's, it's almost a war within a war. Uh, you, you know, the feds aren't paying a whole lot of attention to who you, who you wherever you are or whoever you are as a candidate because they're they're more worried about the grand picture in situations like that uh and it, and it can be rather difficult and we've seen this happen i think in the last three or four federal elections uh where the candidates in in some of these writings actually end up making national news for all the wrong reasons because of something they said or something they put on mm-hmm. social media 15 years ago or something like this i i would think the mantra for the parties right now is look just keep your head down and be quiet okay uh do what you need to do knock on doors but, but you know just let's try to keep this on an even keel oh yeah i think you're right i mean there's there's a really interesting um this is sort of political science theory stuff but um the concept of a franchise like a party acts like a franchise, right? Mm-hmm. Like the central office creates the product and they do the branding and they've got everything kind of very, very unified. And the role of the individual franchise is to carry the thing out, deliver it, right? And so that's the individual riding association, that's the candidate. You're absolutely right. The leader does not want any problems, right? Like your job as the candidate is to go out there and smile and shake hands and make people vote for us. 
you are not supposed to be the story, right, for some bad reason. And so, but it's tough though, though now with social media and things like that. It's hard to, to think that, okay, I've gotten, like, who has no skeletons in their closet at all? Who has never made a mistake that could come out and make them look dumb? And so it's, it's a risk. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's a gamble no matter what. And, and it's, it's part of the campaign now, isn't it? I mean, there are people who are employed by the political parties right now to basically go and search uh, every little detail of, of candidates at the local level. I mean, we already know, uh, you know, that they're, they're going to go after the big fish, the prime minister or cabinet ministers or things of that nature. But even at the local level, because that's ultimately what, what determines the election is how many seats you win in those ridings. Uh, and they will start searching through social media. They will start going through old brochures. They will start going through employment records if they have to, to try to find some dirt on you that's that seems to be the new normal in campaigns and i think that's a really unfortunate place for us to be because i think you know when you look at how people vote oftentimes you're you're not voting for the candidate anyway or at least you know in all of the things that could factor into your decision the candidate is usually not the the most important thing right like you're voting on a on a particular issue you're voting for the party that you know says the right things on climate change or whatever your issue has to happen to be or you're voting for the party brand, or you're voting for the leader. And so I worry that if that's how, you know, political parties being election machines, I worry that the formula is increasingly, for the reasons you, you point out, find a completely risk-averse candidate who will just, you know, carry the banner and cause no problems for us whatsoever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't want that. I want, you know, people to feel like pu- public and political office is something you want to do, even if you've had a really interesting life and you might have to answer some questions about it. Yeah, I don't know. Well, and that's the advice that we've given. We've had so many people, you know, that are expert in social media and, and that kind of communications, and they said, watch what you post, uh, because you don't know when it's going to come back and bite you. It could be an employment opportunity, yeah. which I guess is by definition what an election campaign is. I mean, you, you're knocking on doors asking somebody to hire you, uh, and, and it will come back to bite you. You know, what you can and, and, and put on social media, what you'll post up there is going to have an impact. Uh, another question, and, and I was just, as I do every morning before the show, browsing around a number of different national newspapers and if i had a buck for every columnist around that says this is not the time for a federal election i'd be a wealthy guy uh mm-hmm. but it's been the mantra for about the last month now i i i i, I don't know that there's a right time for an election I, i'd like somebody to define that exactly what is the right time for an election uh and they're saying well the government called the election because they want power what well, what person or what party hasn't called an election because they want power uh, it may not be the opportune time because of the vaccine or the, the, the pandemic and things of this nature. But how long? I mean, it, it, we always hear that, that people are upset that we've been forced into this. Uh, but eventually, that seems to get passed by and we just get it fast. Well, here we are. Whether you like the, the fact that we're doing it or not, we're doing it. Uh, it usually takes a week or two for that to wear off. Do you see that happening or is this something that's going to linger? Well, like to me, I don't think there's a lot of political... Uh, benefit to the opposition leaders continuing to press the prime minister on the, on the timing of the call. Now, if it turns out that, you know, very unfortunately we take a, a nasty turn with COVID and for some reason cases start to rise again, like if something, you know, that something like that happens, then yeah, the timing of the election will be a key issue the whole time and it could hurt the prime minister for sure. However, I think, you know, even if you're irritated by an election call that probably wasn't totally necessary, if you're going to vote for Trudeau, you're going to vote for him. You're not going to switch to O'Toole because you didn't like the timing of the election. Like, I just really think as a political strategy, it's really limited. 
nobody likes an election. I mean, whoever wants an election. You know, I, I don't know anybody that wakes up and says, boy, I wish we had an election coming up sometime. You know, I just love the lawn signs. I just love people knocking on my door at 8 o'clock at night. I just love the, the robocalls. Of course we're going to be upset by this, but it's part of the process. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, I get his point around we've done some really unprecedented and, and significant things, and Canadians should have an opportunity to weigh in. However... Um, he's done a lot of those things already. And a prime minister gets, you know, a prime minister makes decisions and a government governs with the confidence of the House. Parliament is there to give you the mandate to do what you need to do. You, there is no constitutional reason why he has to come back to the public to do it. But, I mean, if he's looking at the polls like everybody else and thinking, yeah, I could get like 200 seats, then, yeah, <laughs> I can see why he doesn't want to pass that opportunity up. But the mistake, and I think it is a mistake that the opposition parties are making right now, they're trying to make the fact that we're in election the ballot box question. And I don't think that's ever going to work. At some point, people are going to say, I really don't give a damn. I'm more concerned about my job, my future, my kids' health, uh, whether or not they're going to be able to go back to school. I, I, the pandemic still has to be the ballot box issue, and, and they're all going to have to pivot in that direction, aren't they? Absolutely. And I think, and not only that, but people are starting to move their attention away from the pandemic to things like you know climate change, affordable mm -hmm. housing, healthcare, as always, and so I think people are. It, it's not going to resonate hugely with people to keep kind of going on and on about how this election is not the right time. People will, you know, it's it's, it's just not not an awesome argument to be honest. And as you say, like, what's the perfect time for an election? None, right? It's always just kind of something we do. So I don't I don't think the prime minister is going to pay heavily for his decision to go now. Well, lots to talk about over the uh, the weeks ahead as we get toward this. Always great to get your perspective on this, though, Doctor. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, thanks so much for the conversation. I always enjoy it. So do I, always. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. As uh, uh, the good doctor mentioned, uh, they're going to the polls tomorrow uh, to elect a provincial government in Nova Scotia, uh, see if uh, Ian Rankin can be reelected or if the uh, Conservatives are going to make some inroads there too. And that may well be, as some people suggest, a bellwether for what might happen federally, at least in the maritime provinces anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tragic scene in... Uh, Afghanistan. Oh, well, we've seen the pictures over the weekend, of course, and embassies are closing down. Uh, there is a mass exodus of people right now, especially in the capital cities. Canada has closed its embassy in Afghanistan, but Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says efforts of Canadians who fought in that country will not be in vain. The Prime Minister condemned the escalating violence in the country. Canada firmly condemns the escalating violence, and we are heartbroken at the situation the Afghan people find themselves in today. This is especially so given the sacrifices of Canadians who believed and continue to believe in the future of Afghanistan. Are we doing enough? Are the Americans doing enough? I know the UK are over there as well, but uh, looking at the pictures here, it just seems in many people's minds uh, that this is too little too late. Joining us to talk about uh, the effort on the ground there is uh, Dr. Athena Madden, who is Assistant Professor in the School of Humanitarian Studies at Royal Rhodes University. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us again today. Thank you for having me. 
It's heartbreaking to watch the pictures from Afghanistan, uh, the exodus, the uh, extrication, whatever w words you want to use, uh, to try to get people out of there. And I know that uh, one of the uh, statements from the Canadian government said they want to get the people out of there that are in the most danger. That's kind of almost everybody that, looking at the way these pictures are right now. Let me ask you what, about the comments that many people are making here, that the efforts by the United States and Canada to try to get people out of there is just too little too late. Should we not have foreseen this was going to happen? I, th this is so heartbreaking, and there are, I agree with you that, uh, yes, um, we could have seen this happening. I, I want to acknowledge that there are so many people that you could be speaking to today um, who would have different stories, and so I think that I've been connecting over the weekend in a very, in a flurry, talking to the people that I've, uh, from my time in Afghanistan, connecting with my colleagues, my former colleagues, my flatmates. Um, most actors have said, or most people have said, externally, external actors could have seen this coming. Um, almost even military actors could have seen this coming from 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 the beginning. Like the the mission was always to get control of the country in ways that the foreign influence would not impact their ability to self determine, and it's just become so radicalized that there is no there's no space now for military intervention. That's too late. So. Um, now it's down to the humanitarian actors who are permitted to be there. Doctor, what were your friends telling you over the weekend? How, what's their state of mind right now? Uh, some former colleagues are very afraid. Um, I have a number of female colleagues who have suggested that, um, you know, back in 2010, there was a huge recruitment for female soldiers, for female models in government, in education. Um, now it's now the perspective is that they're afraid for their families, they're afraid for threats that they will face for being a woman in leadership or a woman in a position that is outside the home, um, and there haven't been any transition or succession plans for them to be able to step back from those positions. So it's just chaotic, both in the government and on the streets. There is no government now, um, and so they're, most of my colleagues are just afraid of what will happen in the future because there was no plan now it's descending into chaos, it's descending into a fear for their families, uh, and it, there's just now there's mass exodus where there's probably going to be casualties for people who are trying to leave the country or leaving the country. Well, we see, and the one that sticks out of my mind, and I, I guess I saw it over and over again on some of the news uh, over the weekend here, is I think it was a U.S. Uh, military plane that was uh, trying to taxi down the runway, and, and there were hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of Afghanis uh, on the runway, basically to stop so we can get on. I mean, and we've seen that happen, too, on the, on the ramps trying to get into the planes, where people are actually climbing up the towers uh, to mm -hmm. try to get onto the plane. I think that... that probably underscores just just how scared a number of people are to say i've got to get out of here because they're fearful of retribution yes i think that the, the five thousand troops that uh, president biden said yesterday would be deployed and the um, military from australia to be deployed is specifically to help that mission now is to um it's to help uh people most vulnerable who have helped the armed forces in the past who have helped military operations in the past um and and national desiring to leave it's to assist that that exodus um i the the clip that you referred to about people climbing the stairs on the tarmac one palpable image i don't know if you've seen the commentary on this um there's a young man standing holding the hand of a child on his cell phone ostensibly looking for somebody in his family 
it's it's heartbreaking to see people in that situation that was inevitable uh, that could have been planned differently. Um, as I'm talking to my colleagues here now in Canada and the United States and in the UK, I think everyone who's worked in Afghanistan has felt build up a nation. I, I think so many people are heartbroken that that was worth nothing now or or the efforts are just going to lead to irreparable harm now and put us back in progress. But especially for women's rights, we we will have to rebuild since 19, like for the past 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just dire. But when you look at that, let's, let's talk about that specifically, because that, that seemed to be one of the stated goals once uh, the, the troops got over there uh, uh, back in 2001. And it was about the plight of, of females in that society. Uh, and, and I know that the American, the UK, and, and even the Canadian uh, contingents have, have, have worked diligently and, and been proud of the fact that, uh, that young women are getting educated now. As you mentioned, women are, are being sought out for places in government offices and places of, of position and in, in, in business, et cetera, uh, free elections, things of that nature. Is, is it all for naught now, Athena? Is, is it just, does that go with, as the troops have left? Yeah, I probably feel like things have changed even since since Saturday. So um, Taliban is also a diffuse term and there isn't a centralized spokesperson. So from what I'm trying to understand is they're try- the Taliban seems to have wanted to rebrand themselves as a moderate force now. Uh, so statements from the Taliban, even though there's no official spokesperson to have gone on record saying this, indicates that the Taliban want to respect the international actors who are delivering humanitarian aid there. Now, we know, however, that that's not been the case in the past. They attacked MFS uh, twice in the past two years. Um, we've heard the Taliban say that they want to respect the positions that women hold at the moment, but no woman I've spoken to feel that that is the case. We know that the Taliban doesn't respect human rights as we would uh, have tried to build up in the past uh, 11, uh, since we've been there since, 2000 and, uh, since 2005. But I know that there are arguments also, if you were to listen to some of the Afghan nationals, which I think is part of the problem, we have not listened to the Afghan nationals, um, which is why the Taliban have been so successful in recruiting and helping radicalize and produce the power that, that currently is now taking over the country. But I, I, I think that like, there's a significant uh, desire for women to continue to hold those positions among the civilian population. The Taliban says they will respect that, and yet uh, women did hold positions of power. They were able to go to school and universities back in the 1970s, and that dwindled in the 80s because of the occupation in part of after the Russian forces came out, like in Russia and Iranian Mm -hmm. occupation, women were able to have equal rights and entitlements to societal spaces, and they can't now. and they won't for the foreseeable future, I think, under the Taliban. I, I'm sorry, I don't know. If that, I, I think I'm lost in my thoughts, and I don't remember if that actually answered your question. No, it does. It addresses it. And we are concerned about what's going to be happening going forward. But is not one of the major problems uh, in, in even trying to anticipate how the Taliban may actually react to this now that uh, they seem to have taken over Kabul as well, uh, is that what the leadership are saying publicly uh, to the international uh, organizations that they're speaking to is not necessarily what's happening on the ground. I mean, we've heard that all the time now, ever since uh, the American and Canadian and UK mm-hmm. contingents and others have been over there, is that uh, 
this is not a, a structured organization that, okay, they pay attention to whatever is said at the top and it filters all the way down. Uh, there are rogue operations. There are people that are doing what they want. There are Taliban groups that are doing much different than what the, the, the leadership are telling them to do right now. So it's, it's to that extent, I would think, uh, Doctor, it's very unpredictable. I agree with you. And you just, uh, yeah, you just, I, you are correct in that there is no centralized leadership for the Taliban. The fact that the Taliban were able to take over the country in five months suggests that there were uh, there were people infiltrating the government and the Afghan National Army who were Taliban affiliated, and that's certainly a reality. We knew that reality back in 2011. Um, radicalization is something that has, because of the terrain also of the country, there hasn't been the ability to have a centralized government for the Taliban. The international community and the pressure uh, from the international community on the Taliban made the operations go underground. So that, as far as I'm aware, there were tacit abilities for the way that the Taliban or people wanting to join the Taliban were able to mobilize. In fact, even using Twitter, uh, I have heard on some accounts, or social media, um, that has assisted the control of the Taliban to spread among younger people. Um, so while, like I said earlier, while there are statements coming up from the Taliban because we don't have a centralized presence and because they have been operating secretly for so long, I think that they have networks of communications that are used, but I don't think everyone, uh, what one person says, like for the one Taliban person who says we'll respect women in positions of governance, I would imagine that there are multiple people who are parts of different groups or different factions who may not share that uh, who may not share that perspective and feel empowered sufficiently to target and to eliminate people in those positions of power. And there will be systematic targeting and likely kidnapping and killing or strategic disappearing of women in those positions of leadership. I saw one U.S. spokesperson over the weekend uh, talking about their perspective on this and said that they had anticipated when their troop withdrawal was, was completed, and that's imminent, of course, uh, that they figured within a few months the Taliban may increase in strength. Uh, it, it took days, really, weeks uh, from the time the announcement was made that the U.S. was pulling out yeah. uh, for the Taliban to just sweep through. Uh, at one point, remember, it was only about two or three weeks ago they were saying, well, look, if the Taliban does they don't even control any of the, any of the, uh, the provincial capitals, the regional capitals. So they control most of them now, uh, and of course the capital city. Uh, with, with the Americans, with the Allied forces being naive in, in that assertion? Part of me, like I'm not a military actor. I've worked alongside and I still keep in contact with military actors. But my thoughts here are, are maybe um, I'm not the best person to answer that question. But I do feel like there was a certain amount of, well, the Biden administration went on record to say that they miscalculated the speed at which the Taliban were able to control Afghanistan. Uh, like you said, it took weeks. It took five months uh, from the withdrawal of the announcement of withdrawal from uh, American forces to, to today or over the weekend where President Karzai left without informing his cabinet. And the cabinet has expressed dismay to uh, disbelief, to outright betrayal because they were not informed. And that adds to the fear, that adds to the chaos. Um, any peaceful transition of power would have included uh, informing of your cabinet. So the Taliban now in control has seized the presidential palace for all intents and purposes. There is no government and uh, it is chaotic and, and people have been killed in the airport as the residents lead to look. So I think the military actors are now coming in to stabilize as much as is possible the people who are trying to leave and the people who the military have uh, 
affiliation or jurisdiction over which would be other military actors and people in diplomatic positions or positions affiliated with local uh, aid actors or or operations on the ground, and the military will assist a peaceful exit or at the very least a low-risk exit. I think at this point, people who are leaving will likely, there will be deaths, um, both civilian and likely we are seeing um, expats also being um, threatened and uh, targeted. And I know some of my former colleagues are, just for their safety, they're in a state of lockdown again until they're able to uh, be advised when they're able to leave safely. But that's an interesting, and I think a very important point here. The suggestion was as well, this, this peaceful transition and this peaceful exit will continue. Uh, I don't want people to uh, leave the impression, uh, based on the information you're telling us here, Doctor, people, not everybody who wants to leave is going to be allowed to leave. Correct. Uh, and, and a lot and of those, unfortunately, will be, well, have been, um, people who assisted American-Canadian intelligence operations, the transmitters, or people who assisted in aid delivery. A lot of them have not been able to, to permit us to leave because of extensions of foreign policy. So I think um, it's complicated, it's complex, and it's a mess. Uh, but I think that what we need to do now is amplify the voices of those who are on the ground there, the initiatives of those who are on the ground there. And likely at this point, it needs to be Afghan-led. I think had Afghan voices been listened to consistently throughout the process of military operations in the country, not that the military did not listen to local actors, but I, again, my, 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 uh, when I have been in Afghanistan, it's with locally led NGOs. And so my perspective has been listening to both criticism of international interference and the cultures that international actors bring that are disrespectful towards Afghans. Um, and I think much of those tensions that people have felt and even even here in Canada, there have been people who have been staunchly opposed to any military intervention in the country, in, in the country of Afghanistan. Uh, the NDP, Jack Layton, was staunchly against uh, mm-hmm. interference in Afghanistan. So I think that that filters out and people have so many opinions about what now, why, why this happened and what can we do. Uh, those, those per- now it's not particularly unhelpful. I think what the most helpful thing to do would be to listen to the voices of Afghan people on the ground and amplify those voices. And I, what I'm particularly following are the voices of Afghan artists. Um, Artwork.net is a good one. Um, the people of Afghanistan have lost their freedom of expression uh, collectively and in spaces of governance, but the artists are still able uh, to, they paint graffiti on walls and businesses uh, downtown or across the city sort of in a Banksy-style way, to be able to help create messages of, of hope and mobilization for civilians. Um, I'm, I'm following those voices, and I'm trying to... I'm particularly hopeful that, that the artists and musicians that did not have space to express themselves in the first Taliban rule, uh, for all intents, from everything that we've heard in the Taliban, uh, freedom of expression in the artistic community has not been stifled yet. So I think that there's something that we can listen to those I've got about a minute left, but it's a very important question as a follow-up to that, though, Doctor. Are you concerned? I mean, you mentioned you've been in touch over the weekend uh, with some of the people that you do know over there. Are you concerned those voices could be silenced as, as this goes on? I think everybody I think everybody is. I think for women, children, uh, it's particularly urgent. Um, but, yes, it's very sad. And so if you just have a minute left, I think what people can do is, as 
Canada's agreed to resettle 25,000 Afghan refugees, help support mm-hmm. those efforts, not just with monetary donations, but through community support. And um, you can sign up through the immigration uh, immigration website. Absolutely. Well, more to come on this, certainly, as, as that program unfolds uh, in the next little while. Doctor, thank you so much for spending some time with us and giving us a, a much clearer picture of what's going on there. It's a tragic situation, and uh, hopefully Canada can step up and, and help a number of people that are, are looking for safety at this particular stage. Uh, hopefully we can talk about this again down the road. Thank you again for today. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Athena Medan, assistant professor in the School of Humanitarian Studies at Royal Roads University, who's spent some time up in Afghanistan and certainly still has contacts there. And it's a, it's a horrific scene to see what's happening there, especially in the capital these days. And we'll certainly keep an eye on that and just see how uh, governments, not just this government, because many other governments are involved in this, uh, are going to respond uh, in a humanitarian way. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.